Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. My name is Connor Collins. I'm a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 63, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Jamie Johnston. Jamie is a massage therapist and firefighter from Victoria, British Columbia, as well as an educator and founder of the Massage Therapy Development Centre. During this episode, we discussed exercise and its positive influences in the clinical setting. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation, and I hope that you do as well. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Okay, good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Uh, Connor here with another interview for you. Really, really looking forward to this one uh, this morning. And you've heard me speak on other podcasts about my passion for education, as well as other massage therapists and other practitioners that are really pushing for quality education in our field. And I've talked a lot about how when I was growing up as a, a therapist, a new therapist, taking educational courses from other practitioners, and how I didn't necessarily think that that was a bad thing, but I've, I really appreciated when other massage therapists were trying to push education within massage therapy. So without further ado, uh, Jamie Johnson, welcome to the Concast. I really appreciate you being here, uh, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Thanks so much, Connor. really appreciate you having me on. So it's an honor. So before we get into some of the educational stuff and some of the, the topics that we're going to be talking about, today. Uh, for those people that don't know you, uh, I'd love for you to give yourself a bit of a background as long or as short as you want and, and tell all the listeners how you've gotten to where you're at now and what are some of the projects that you're working on currently. Sure. Um, so uh, before I was an RMT, I was an industrial first aid attendant at a sawmill. So that was sort of my first venture into any kind of healthcare stuff where I was managing you know, 300 employees that could possibly chop limbs off and that sort of thing, working in a sawmill. Um, so that's where the um, sort of the passion for helping people started to come from. And so uh, about a year into my career there, I started volunteering with the fire department in that town. Um, and I spent six years with that fire department. And then eventually the sawmill shut down and I was trying to decide what I was going to do with myself. So I decided um, that getting an education would be a good idea. And I was debating going into nursing, but I went and did uh, some aptitude testing. And uh, the fellow who did who I did the aptitude testing with uh, came back and, and on the aptitude test, you know, it comes up with things that you might be interested in or might be good at. And massage therapy was one of the things that came up. And I honestly would have never thought of that in a million years. And then when I started looking into it, I saw that you could work with athletes and work with sports teams. And from that Point right there I was hooked and, and I decided to, to go back to school for that and about a month later uh, went back to school to be a massage therapist and then graduated in 2010 started practicing in 2011 um, all the while I was still volunteering as a firefighter and now I have a career job as a firefighter so I do that uh, along with being a therapist 
And early in my career, when I was a student, I started uh, volunteering with one of our local hockey teams. And I spent seven years with that team. Uh, spent one year as the head trainer and medical director with the team. Uh, moved on and did a year with uh, the men's sevens team with team with Rugby Canada. And for the last five years, I've been with Hockey Canada and women's development program, working with them. So, you know, in addition to working in a clinical setting, uh, the sports end of things was always a, a big passion of mine. So I'm fortunate to still get to do it and get to do some pretty cool stuff. Uh, so then along with that, it was about six years ago, I think I started uh, my website, which is the Massage Therapist Development Center. Um, and that was really just another sort of passion project of just trying to advance our profession and trying to increase education within our profession um, and looking at research and things like that, because I don't think that was getting done very much with a lot of the continuing education that we were seeing. Um, so started with that and then, you know, a couple of years ago, started teaching some continuing ed courses on therapeutic exercise and pain science with Eric Purvis. And we've been doing that for a few years now and uh, yeah, still going with it and, and starting to get some reach and, and making some great connections with, with other therapists like yourself. Yeah, it sounds like you've got your hands in a lot of things. What would you say is kind of the split percentage-wise between everything, sort of the firefighting, clinical practice, Hockey Canada, and then the continuing education, sort of virtual education stuff? Um, well, the, the fire department that I work at, we work a 24-hour shift, so I only work two days a week there. Um, so I do kind of like two days a week there, two days a week in the clinic, uh, so it's sort of a 50-50 split, I guess, between, between firefighting and um, and being a therapist. And then as far as Hockey Canada goes, it's usually just uh, a camp in the summer in Calgary for two or three weeks. And then depending on which team you're placed with, uh, you might end up traveling that winter. So last last winter, went to Slovakia for world championships with under 18s and two years before that went to Russia for the same tournament. Um, so I get to do a little bit of travel with them, but it's not like it's a full-time gig that you're doing week to week. It's just a, a couple times a year that you're invited out and get to go work with them. Um, and then the continuing education stuff and blogging, uh, the blogging is a, is a constant because uh, it's always constantly looking at new research and trying to develop articles around that to, to help educate uh, not only other people, but myself. Um, and then the teaching schedule is, it's getting busy for this year. Unfortunately, COVID put a wrench into things last year. Uh, but now as things are starting to open up a little bit for us, we're, we're able to do that. And we're doing it, um, some of the courses are via Zoom as well. And then I'm putting together, uh, which should be ready to launch here in a couple of weeks, an online course on pain science and therapeutic exercise through my website. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of juggling a lot of balls, but uh, keeping them all in the air at this point. Yeah, but it's great to have the, I mean, if that's what you're looking for, great to be able to have the variety in your career. I think some of the younger therapists that I talk to have a lot of questions about how to develop careers like that, where having clinical practice all of the time can be quite exhausting physically and even emotionally. And if you're looking for some diversity in your practice, then there are definitely ways that you can do that as, as you've showed and whether it's a sport interest or a health and wellness interest, it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. There's a lot of opportunity and especially for some of the paths that you've started to, to, to pay for people through your, your website, you're bringing a lot more eyes and a lot more attention to good quality education in the field of massage therapy, I would imagine worldwide now. If you can talk a little bit about what was the driving force for that, how has that continued to grow? What are some things that you've done that have worked? What are some things that you've chosen to, to leave off? I, 
I think people would see value in that. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, you know, I don't know what it's like in Ontario, but at least in British Columbia, we're not allowed to say that we specialize in anything, but I mean, the reality is there's so many therapists that we, we would say focus their practice on certain things. And if you, uh, if you're focusing your practice on a certain thing, chances are there's a lot of other people out there that would like to focus their practice on something similar. You know, sometimes we've got to get out of our own head and be willing to just put ourselves out there. So as far as like the continuing education goes, we're big proponents of, you know, RMTs really need to start learning from RMTs. Because I think quite often we go and take courses that are from chiropractors or physiotherapists or, you know, other practitioners. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, some of the some of the greatest people that I've learned from in my career are physios and chiropractors. But the thing is, none of them know what it's like to be a massage therapist. Very rarely are they spending an hour or an hour and a half with a patient. They typically don't spend the same amount of time with somebody that we do. And I don't think that the patient's... Uh, open up to them the same way that they do to us. So we're, we're really pushing for uh, more RMTs to start venturing into the teaching field because that's, that's I think, one of the biggest ways we're going to grow as a profession because there's a lot of holes um, in our education. And, you know, as much as we could point the finger at the colleges and say, you know, you're still teaching outdated information in that, um, that it's probably not going to change. So the only way we change is by educating people once they come out. So if you have something that you focus your practice on, guaranteed, there's other people that would want to know how to do that. So, you know, just start developing some content around how you can help those other practitioners. You know, I mean, the only thing that we, re that we request is to make it evidence-based. Uh, make it feel you know, that it's got some research behind it. It's not just fanciful stuff. Um, so just start putting content out. And, and that was one of the big things that I wanted with, with my blog was to have other blog posts from people who knew stuff that I didn't so that we can share that information with, with other massage therapists and really grow the profession and help educate the profession. So I completely agree. And, and to piggyback off that point too, I don't think that massage therapy I'm sure you would agree as well as isolated in that conundrum, if you will, of uh, current information being outdated as per a college. Like it yeah, seems, no. to, it seems to be the same across all colleges. And to to be frank, colleges aren't necessarily there to educate us. They're they're there to ensure an entry level of competence and safety of a therapist. And so, if we're continually looking to the colleges to educate where we should be now. The colleges are going to be years behind the research, and that's why people like yourself or websites or blogs help push professions forward and facilitate that kind of active learning aspect, especially in a day and age where digital information is so readily accessible and people can take it upon themselves to learn without necessarily having to wait for that four-day course that costs 2000 bucks. Yeah. They, can, they can go to YouTube. They can go to blogs. They can see what some of these other people are doing and piggyback their careers off of that if that's something that they choose to do. Totally. And I mean, like I said, a lot of the things that I've learned, I've learned from physios and chiros and things like that, and again, kind of piggy, piggybacking off what, uh, what they've taught me. Unfortunately, you know, all of them that I've reached out to where I've, you know, asked them to use some content or something like that, they've all graciously given it to me. Um, in order to help me out. So I, I think we, we need to embrace that as well as being willing to share content uh, in order to advance things. So I know that when we were discussing some kind of general sweeping topics for the podcast today, one of the topics that came up was exercise. And 
we've touched on it a little bit about just trying to diversify your portfolio as a therapist if you want from a career standpoint as well as just when you're in the clinic. Before we get into this topic of exercise, I'd love to know what your thoughts are in general on exercise with patients or exercise in general. When someone says the word exercise or rehab in the context of maybe a clinical appointment, what does that mean to you in general? And then I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into things a little bit deeper. Yeah, I think like one of the things with that is I think we, we put this image of exercise up that it has to be something that somebody's in a gym and they're lifting weights and, you know, hitting a treadmill or something like that, but it's, it doesn't have to be that at all. In fact, I'd say most of the time, especially as a massage therapist, when people are coming in, getting to that level isn't necessary. And when we, when we talk to our average patient that's coming in with some aches and pains, you know, exercise could be as simple as recommending that they go do their favorite thing, whether that's working in the garden or going for a walk or going for a hike or doing any of the, any of those kind of things. Um, so when I see people come in, when we talk about exercise and I talk to them, it's really a mutual goal setting thing that we've made between us where, you know, if they have some low back pain, I give them some strategies about movements and exercises that they can do at home and then saying, you know, go and do whatever that favorite thing is that you do. Um, and it could be as simple as, you know, they had a, they had a sore low back because they were gardening for three hours on the weekend because it's now spring, but for the past six months, while it's been winter, they haven't done any gardening. So they've maybe gone and overdone it a little bit. So just talking to them about like gradually getting back into it. So, you know, go work in the garden for half an hour, take a break, then go back to it for half an hour. We'll gradually work you up to that three hours that you can do. To me, it's a mutual goal setting thing that you're doing with them. And, and it's, and it has to be individualized and personalized to them because there's a a big difference between, you know, a, a weekend warrior soccer player that's coming in who maybe has an acute ankle injury. So, so we really need to make it individualized and, and make it personal and important to them when we're talking to them about exercise. Are there ever times where, uh, with respect to people that aren't necessarily interested in exercise, we're talking about maybe setting mutual goals with people and those people aren't necessarily interested in moving at all, right? They've come in and they've got an injury or an ailment or pain, for example, and they're just a very sedentary individual and they just don't want to move. And I've experienced this as well. And I'm sure there, there are people of all types of activity levels that listen to the podcast as well. How do we, or how do you navigate those sort of circumstances where you feel as though somebody would do well with exercise or movement? but they don't really have any interests and they just don't want to really move. For me, anyways, like when I've encountered things like that, it's it, not that I necessarily come out and say it like this right away, but I, I kind of look and go, well, you can continue to pay me an hour a week to come in and we can manage this. Or, you know, you can do some movement that's going to help that. And then you don't have to see me that often. If you can, you don't necessarily have to hit them in the pocketbook with it, but, you know, making the point to them that they're going to have better long-term effects if they're more engaged in the treatment plan and more engaged in the movement and exercise, because like for me, I firmly believe that all of the stuff we do on the table with somebody is reinforced by them moving and doing exercise. So if you can kind of explain to them that we're going to have a better outcome that, you know, nobody wants to live in pain and you've got a better chance of decreasing that pain by doing these movement things. So let's just work together. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to completely stop treatment altogether, but you know, when we look at just simple things, as far as like the research on low back pain, one of the best exercises for low back pain is going for a walk. 
So, you know, just simply talking to them and saying, you know, after we, after we have our treatment, maybe go for a five minute walk and see how that feels. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of graded exposure. So, you know, when you've got somebody in any setting, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go do an hour of exercise. Let's just start with five minutes and then we'll see how you feel after that. And if you feel a bit better, great. Let's, let's bump it up to 10 minutes and let's gradually work together in order to make those kind of things work. And, and, you know, I use a lot of graded exposure movements and exercise as part of my assessment when people come in and just showing them, you know, if you wake up in the morning and your back is stiff, just do these movements at home and it'll help loosen your back up and you'll probably feel better throughout the day. So just, I always start by just planting little seeds of information and then hopefully that grows into something bigger. For people that are listening that might not have heard of that word graded exposure, what does that mean in a, a really simplistic way when we're approaching or when we're discussing exercise? Um, well, typically, like when we look at graded exposure, it's something where, like it, it originally came from a psychological uh, background. So what they would do is take people who were, say, scared of spiders, and they would put a spider in a glass case in the corner of a room. And I think they would start typically with a dead spider. And then they would take that person and they'd, they'd open the door so they could see the spider. And then they gradually move them closer to the spider until they could eventually touch it. And then they back off and they'd use a live spider and then they gradually expose them a little bit to that every time until finally they could have a spider on them and it didn't freak them out. So really we're trying to do the same thing with movement. Um, you know, if somebody comes in and I'll always go back to low back pain because it's a very simple one, but if somebody comes in and they're having difficulty, say just bending forward to touch their toes, then we can change the movement a little bit and just gradually expose them to being able to do it more than before you know what they can touch their toes. So really it's, it's basically taking a feared movement and gradually pushing people, or not necessarily pushing people into it, but exposing them to that movement a little more until it becomes a routine. So just like baby steps to get you to where you're going, really? Basically, yeah. Yeah, because I think that's an important point. A lot of when we talk about exercise and going back to what you were saying about goal setting is, or even when you talk about exercise for weight loss and fitness and health and wellness, is if you start somebody on the 10th rung of the ladder, the chances of success might be seemingly decreased. Whereas if you start on rung one, you then take them to rung two, you gradually expose them to these increasingly physically and maybe cognitively or mentally demanding things. They might see that as a little bit more favorable and a little bit more enjoyable than you will often hear the story of somebody that's starting, for example, a fitness journey outside of the context of pain, and they go and they run five or 10 kilometers as their first workout, and they have a lot of pain as a result of that. They have a lot of, essentially, they're not feeling very great after that workout, and so they don't necessarily want to go back to it, whereas, as you said, if you take somebody slowly and progressively through these stages, they might stand a better likelihood of success. Totally, yeah, and I think that's really what we're like whether it's rehabbing an injury or whether it's somebody who just has some simple neck pain because they they slept on their neck long the night before um and you're just gradually exposing them to that movement to get them moving is easier and it's really about building resilience in that person and, and building self-efficacy um and that's just great ways to do it it's just gradually exposing them to that a little bit at a time so we have this relationship in the in the therapy world this therapeutic relationship if you will and with everybody that comes into our clinic, we're always trying to, again, establish goals between the patient and the therapist and come up to some mutual understanding. And sometimes as the therapists, as we've talked about, we have to reframe these a little bit 
Now, let's say I'm from a therapy perspective and maybe I'm a newer therapist and I'm struggling with being a little bit more diversified in my portfolio. So I don't have a great exercise background. I might not be familiar with graded exposure. I don't feel particularly confident in maybe taking a patient through this, but I want to learn and I want to embark on using exercise a little bit more in my practice. Do you have any advice for younger therapists or maybe even more seasoned therapists that currently aren't doing this to try and integrate this in some way, shape or form? Do you suggest a course? Do you suggest just doing it with people? How do you think these people learn best? Well, I think, I think part of the, and I'm, I'm going to speak for myself here is, is especially early in my career, I feel like I got pigeonholed and I think I did it to myself. And, and I, and I would say that because I felt that way, there's probably a lot of people that feel the same way because I felt like if I was going to do exercise with somebody, I had to refer them out to a physio or I had to refer them out to somebody else. Um, but then as I started to get to know, especially like some really good physios, um, like down at San Diego Pain Summit and stuff like that, um, I would talk to them and be like, well, your guys' exercise scope is, is way, like you guys just know way more than we do. And they looked at me and they're like, no, we don't. We don't, we don't come out of school with a huge exercise background. We're like our school, we're in hospitals, we're doing like all this other stuff. But, and I always thought that these guys and, and these were, you know, these huge exercise components. They're like, no, if, if we want to learn that, we learn it after school. So that kind of changed my thinking. And all of them looked at me and I know, I don't know about Ontario, but I know in, in BC, our scope is identical to a physio with the exception of using electrical modalities and one or two other things. So there's absolutely no reason that we can't do exercise with people. There's no reason that we can't take them into a gym if our clinic has that. Because I and I specifically moved to a clinic with a gym a few years ago just so that I could start to do more of that. Um, and looking back on it, I probably didn't need to move because you can do most of what you need to do in your clinic room. So I think the biggest thing is if it's something you want to do, it doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to get started. You do, you don't have to like come at it and be like, oh, I'm a total professional. So just start with some passive range of motion with people, then do some active assisted range of motion, some active range of motion. We all know how the joints move. We all know how, you know, the shoulder and the knee and everything moves. So just get them moving and then resist the movements a little. Um, you can do it totally within treatment, but it doesn't have to be perfect. So just get started with it and experiment with it. It's it's okay to, to make mistakes and it's, and it's okay to try new things. Yeah, I like what you said about the the idea that physical therapists or chiropractors come out further ahead in, in terms of exercise, I think really all professions across the board are starting at relatively the same place. And then depending upon whatever niche market that person falls into, they're going to learn a method that works for them to develop their own practice style. And then like patients are going to refer uh, like patients. So you talked uh, a little bit about some some exercise choices there. You'd mentioned something like passive range of motion, which is taking kind of a limb or a joint through range of motion. You talked about active range of motion a little bit and then adding some resistance to it. I know I'm a big proponent of an active care program, trying to get people moving in some way, shape or form. Sometimes that's under load and other times it's not depending upon the individual. And I'm sure you're probably the same. I would assume that you're really trying to promote and push some type of active care program with 
the majority of people that you see that it would work for them. Could you just speak to some of the importance of of just having an active care routine, what an active care routine is and, and how that would benefit us in terms of the context of pain or just overall wellness? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, again, I'll always keep coming back to it has to be individual to the patients. So I do, it's not that I necessarily do exercise with every single patient that comes in. For instance, I look at it and, you know, and here we've got a lot of nurses that have unlimited benefits from massage. So they come in and when I look at them, it could be that they're coming in with, you know, they're just sore from say moving heavy patients all day. And maybe they just need an hour to relax on a table where that's their break from work, that's their break from life. So I don't necessarily look at them and go, okay, we need to do a bunch of a bunch of uh, exercise. However, if they're coming in with something that's really specific, that they're like, I can't do this thing at my job because of this pain. Then I'm gonna start looking at, okay, well, let's look at some movement stuff that's gonna help with that. So it's, it's really individual to each person. And, and like I mentioned before, it could be the weekend warrior soccer player that's got an acute ankle sprain. Well, I'm gonna look at some loading techniques and loading things that we can do to help that ankle and just, especially in the acute phase of like range of motion mobility stuff is the best thing we can do for them. Um, but I think after sort of that phase, when you start to look at people that are in pain and when you can use exercise strategies, like isometrics are looked at as an analgesic when we start to look at the research. So just simply, if somebody has an issue with hip flexion, just doing a resisted hip flexion where they're not moving the limb through like a full range of motion, can actually do a lot to decrease the pain that they're experiencing. So once they get comfortable with that, then we can start looking at concentrics to start to load the tissue a little bit more. So it's really just resisting that and letting them go through say full flexion with it. And then when, once they get more comfortable with that and they're doing it pain-free, we can start to look at eccentrics. So they're trying to push into flexion, but you're pushing their knee away from them, say for, for hip flexion. So that's creating an eccentric load. Um, the, the thing you have to do at that point is just have a good conversation with them because typically after doing an eccentric load, they're gonna be sore for a little bit longer than if they did a concentric. So just having that conversation with them and making sure that you're okay with that. So just understanding like the tissue healing phases and then when to appropriately do those loads, you can do everything that you need to on your table. And then a lot of that stuff can just be home care that they take home. So there's their active plan when they're at home. And you know, if they've got a band at home or like a resistance band or anything like that, then they can do the same movements just with the resistance. I think you brought up a really important point about isometrics. Isometrics are a contraction where the tissue generally doesn't really change in length. So if you imagine you have your elbow underneath a table flexed to 90 degrees as if you're lifting a weight, and you're just kind of pushing gently against the table and you can feel your bicep contract right now, that'd be an isometric. And as Jamie said, a lot of the effects of isometrics in the current research now are analgesics, suggesting that they help reduce or modulate the pain experience in certain individuals, not in all individuals. In speaking what we've been speaking about now for people that are listening, either therapists or not therapists, we know that that works across or it can work across all joints. So it could just be as simple as lightly pushing into something for a period of time and then taking that home with. And I found, and I'm not really sure where, where or when you started to integrate isometrics into your practice, Jamie. I took them out for a long time and probably in the last four or five years, I've reintegrated them more than ever and I'm using them more than ever and I'm finding anecdotally, of course, that I'm getting really great results with pain management in those more acute phases of 
where people are a little bit more aggravated. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to like, that's a great point to bring up because it goes back to what you were talking about earlier is how do you get buy-in from a patient who isn't necessarily interested in exercise? So just doing a simple thing like that where they're on the table and it helps to reduce their pain, then you can use that as your starting off point to say, hey, look, look what you just did. Because I always try to put it back on them. That you just did this active movement that helped you reduce pain. So if you just did this for, say, a couple minutes a day at home, it's going to help out with your pain. And then when they come in the following week, you kind of touch base with them and, and see if they've been doing it. And if not, you encourage them to do more of it. And if they have been doing it, then touch base with how they're feeling. And if they're feeling better, then that's your, your next encouragement point, your little seed that you're going to drop to be like, well, if you did more of this, you're going to, you're going to have a greater benefit and then start to introduce more things to them. So, you know, I'm always trying to put it back on them that they're the ones who did the work that, and I'm, I'm always like, good job. Good for you. Look what you just did. Um, putting it back on them to create that resiliency for them. And that way they're not constantly looking to us for passive care and we're creating that self-efficacy for them. Yeah, and I think if you create that resiliency as early on in the therapeutic relationship as possible, you get better buy-in from your patients. One of the questions that I'm always asked and always seems to be a discussion in our industry is, do you think it's important to reduce a patient's pain in the first visit? And I don't really know how to answer that because I, I do think, I do think generally speaking, you, you would do better off if you did reduce pain because I mean, pain is a painful experience for somebody is something that is obviously concerning to them. But I also think that if you explain it in the context of what you just did there, it becomes maybe less important because you're building a resilient patient that you're confident or you hope that you're confident that they will improve in other aspects over time. But pain is one of those things where it is the most common stressful output of an injury that people relate to. What are your thoughts on, on that sort of question? That I don't know if that's come up in your circle, but it seems to come up in my circle all the time. I don't really have a yes or a no, but I could see how it could be important. I don't think it is actually. I think it's, I think it's more important to educate in that first visit because what you're what we're trying to do is build that therapeutic relationship right from square one and pain is a normal part of everyday life and for whatever reason in the western society we've bastardized pain and turned it into this thing that nobody should ever experience but that's just not realistic realistically all of us are going to experience low back pain probably once every two years the research shows us that so are we going to remove their pain automatically in the first visit Probably not, especially if we're dealing with somebody who, who say they has persistent or chronic pain. So if this person has been experiencing pain for two years, we're probably not going to get rid of that pain in one visit. But if we can start to educate them and show them that pain is normal, and we can start to talk to them about strategies they can use to minimize that pain or to decrease the pain a little bit before their next visit. And we work basically on a graded exposure basis of every, every visit, if we can decrease it a little bit or help with it a little bit. And that's fine because I'd say the bigger concern is whether somebody's going to be going to enter into like disability because somebody can experience pain, but they could still go run a marathon. So what, we're, what we should be trying to worry about is decreasing disability and make it so that even though they're experiencing some pain, they can still go do the things that they love to do, that they can still actively partake, partake at work or in, in other aspects of life. So to me, I think it's more about education and showing them that they are a resilient person, that they can do the things that they love to do, even though 
they might be experiencing some pain while they're doing it. Yeah, building up resilience. I would imagine that part of the strategy that you're using there is trying to look at other elements of stress response. Maybe it's function, activities of daily living, range of motion, tasks, things they can do versus things they can't do, and not necessarily focusing on just pain as part of what they're going through, but looking at some of the other elements of, like I said, stress responses of an injury or a condition or something chronic that they're trying to manage. Totally. And that's why, you know, we look at the, the best model or framework of pain that we have right now is looking at the biopsychosocial. So, you know, it's, although biomechanics play a part in it, it's not always the only thing. So looking at psychosocial influences that could be affecting this person, for instance, you know, is it a workplace injury that they're dealing with? And are they worried about going back to work? And I mean, that's really why workplaces have a gradual return to work program. It's just great at exposure to work to get that person back to, to doing their job again. So, you know, they might start out that they can only go into work for two hours, but then they might be able to get to the point that they could go in for eight hours, but they're still experiencing a bit of pain, but their personal functional outcomes are a lot better than they were when we first started working with them. So we aren't always necessarily going to completely get rid of pain, but if we can help this person to have a more, I, I hate using the word functional, but a more functional life where there's less disability, that I think is a more valid goal. Yeah, and that's why active care programs are so important because maybe that person has the same level of pain. Maybe they're experiencing pain that's, say, 7 out of 10 or some arbitrary number that we're giving, but they're able to walk 5 kilometers instead of no kilometers. That, yeah. is, a, that is a huge improvement in what they're doing. And if you only use pain as a primary measure, then you're missing all of the other things that that person could be building resilience around. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love it. Uh, um, I was just reading a paper the other day and that's what it talked about. It was talking about the confluence of clients, community and clinician in people's pain. And one of the things that it showed is that, uh, you know, the beliefs about pain are a bigger contributor to disability than they are to pain. So, you know, the, if we're putting negative beliefs on a patient about their low back, that's actually going to promote more disability in that person. So if we can show them that, Hey, you can do this stuff. You can like, you know, use greater exposure or whatever and be like, you can do this stuff. Look what you're able to do. While they still may have a bit of pain, we're, we're not increasing that disability and we're able to get them back to doing those things again. So that's, I, I think that's a more important thing than just getting rid of pain. When you are looking at developing some of these active care programs with patients, do you have criteria by which you base your decision-making on for exercises? I know we've talked about it being patient dependent and specific to the person, which I think is great. Do you, but do you have any other general rules of thumb for yourself that you use as a screening method or to help guide your decision-making either that you see objectively or that somebody tells you? Um, I think it's, you know, you have that conversation with them, but, but also looking at the timeline of when the injury happened. Um, it's a very different conversation with somebody who just sprained their ankle and somebody who's, say, two years in and experiencing chronic pain. Yeah, it's a very different conversation with both of those people. Um, the acute injury one, then we can just look at, I'll look at the uh, phases of healing, like acute remodeling phase and go, okay, well, this is the point that I can start doing concentric load. This is when I can start doing an eccentric um, and have that conversation with them. 
And most of the time in cases like that, like I remember a lady that came in this to me two years ago who was a soccer player, sprained her ankle and was like, oh, I went to another practitioner and they said, I, I can't play soccer anymore for a month. And I was like, no, go, go play. Like you're, you didn't injure it that bad. You didn't hear a pop. There wasn't any traumatic injury. You just sprained it. So we know that loading is going to be effective for that. And we also know that taking an athlete out of that thing that they love can have worse effects by, by telling them not to do the thing they love than by just leaving them in there. So I think, you know, two weeks later, the person will be back full playing soccer again. Whereas you've got that chronic pain person and, and that's where you have to drop those little seeds that I keep talking about all the time where it's, you know, they're typically, you know, we can't speak for everybody, but um, they may have some movements that they're very scared of because they equate those movements to pain. Whereas we know that, you know, two years in, all your tissues are healed. It's just that for some reason, uh, your brain is still sending pain signals to protect that area. So that's where I have that conversation of, you know, talking about how, how pain in the brain works and then exposing a little bit to those things. And then, you know, if it's just sitting in a chair, they find difficult, it's okay, well, let's, you know, sit you in a different way. And then I'll get them sitting in a chair. I'll be like, okay, when you go home, then just try sitting in a chair for five minutes a day, then 10 minutes a day and working up from there. Uh, so if I'm sort of summarizing what you just said there, is it, I would say that when you're looking at people that have, that are coming in, you're trying to see whether they fall into, and again, it is substantially more complex than this, but two categories, somebody that has injured themselves acutely and may fall into the more acute, subacute, chronic stages of healing of that acute injury and looking at whether and what tissue you can load and in what ways appropriately during that phase versus somebody that's come in and you don't necessarily suspect that they have gone through this style of injury where there might be acute disruption and you're taking more of maybe a graded exposure approach, even though graded exposure is used in the first, the first scenario as well. You're looking at maybe how the brain's responding to things a little bit more in the chronic phase. I mean, you can't necessarily say that, but I'm trying to make it a little bit more simple for people that are listening that might not have the background in medicine. Yeah. Um, well, I, and, and that's a whole pain conversation, you know, understanding how pain works. But, but yeah, I think, I think you got it there. Um, you know, looking at somebody who's dealing with persistent pain, it, it depends on what they've been told in that two years of persistent pain as well. Like um, I've got a really good friend named uh, Keith Meldrum, who's a chronic pain person who he's been dealing with chronic pain for 20 some odd years, I believe. Um, and he, he has taught me a lot about communicating with people who are, who are having persistent pain. Um, and he's an advocate for that. So he very much talks about like how important exercise to him is to him as somebody with persistent pain. Whereas if we've been, if we're helping somebody who say several practitioners over that past two years has looked at them and said, oh, you can't do this, you can't do this, or it's going to make your pain worse. They're going to come in thinking, I can't do that thing because it's going to make my pain worse. Whereas we know that probably the best thing they can do is that thing in order to get out of pain. So it's, it, it depends on where the person's at when they're sitting in front of you. And that's why I think always starting with education is the important thing. And then obviously listening to them and validating their experience, especially with a persistent pain patient, the, whatever those things are that they're worried about is probably the best thing they can do in order to get out of pain. So 
it's a fine dance, if you will, in having that communication point with them. But hopefully along the way, um, we're going to plant those little seeds and maybe it takes six months of helping them before they start to do those things. And then maybe it's a year later that they're starting to notice a bigger difference from it. So we got to, we got to fully, it's communication wise. We have to be careful with, with how we put it to people. But um, I think always going back to that education point is important. Yeah, and it's such a dynamic, ever-changing process too, right? What happens on day one is not going to be the same as day three, and there are so many factors that go go into that. Speaking of the the dance that we're doing with all these patients, how do you work in the context of dealing with patients where other practitioners are assisting in the process, um, people like physical therapy or chiropractic care, and we're talking about you know massage therapy and the context of prescribing exercise in in a massage therapy appointment, do you operate a little bit differently in those spaces when there might be a physical therapist or a chiropractor that's also co-treating the patient? Do you all speak together? How does that work for you? I think it's another one of those things where you have to be careful. And if it's, you know, I've, I've been pretty privileged over the years, I think, um, when it comes to, say, working at the national level when it comes to working with physios and chiros at the national level, whether it's rugby or hockey or whatever, the best ones that I have found to work with are the ones that have no ego um, because it's more collaborative and, and a more communal decision-making that you're, that you're taking in order to help people out. And, you know, the, the ones that have no ego have never had an issue with me recommending an exercise or a movement to a person um, and vice versa. I'm not going to sit there and, and look at them and go, oh, well, you shouldn't be treating them this way. Um, and that goes right from doctors down to the strength and conditioning coaches. When we, when we go away, we really work as a team. Um, when it's in a clinical setting, if it's, say, somebody who's going to a physiotherapist at a different clinic that I don't know, sometimes I'll reach out to them and say, hey, I'm seeing this person too, which could be just an email. And you can try to be a little collaborative that way. And then I've had other experiences where patients have come in and I've... <laughs> probably not supposed to do this, but looked at them and said, don't go back to that clinic because of what was being said to them. Uh, I, I remember one lady came in and sat down in front of me and started crying. And this is a person that I had seen five or six times who was in a car accident and she started crying. And I was like, well, what's going on? And looked at me and said, this other practitioner told me that I'm never going to get that. And I just said, don't go back in that office again because that's you've already gotten better in the six weeks that you've come here. So I think it's, it's, it, it can be a tough, for lack of a better term, a tough dance to play again. But if you can reach out and communicate with those other practitioners, hopefully they're open to it and you can have a bit more collaboration on it. And I've had some really good success with some and I'm not with others. Yeah, I think reaching out is a, a great first step. I would say that in my experience, if I reach out, I don't hear back very often, to be honest with you. If I do reach out, I think that would be pretty, pretty typical. Um, just because most therapists are just kind of doing their own thing. And I think that in the context of a national setting, you're right. It's, you are very privileged to have a kind of a strict team that's managing that person. And you're working in a very collaborative process there. Not to say that other clinics aren't doing that, but it's just uh, maybe an easier environment to do that in. But yeah, it's always a, always a difficult decision when there's kind of multiple cooks in the kitchen, especially when there's a philosophical difference there uh, between practitioners and uh, I don't really think I have a good answer so that's why I asked you the question <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, yeah and I don't think there is one 
one correct answer because I think it's going to be just as it's individual to the patient, it's individual to the practitioner. Um, I've, you know, the clinics that I've worked at um, were mostly massage therapy clinics where we didn't have kind of physio in that involved. Um, so I've had some good relationships with people over the years where we had a mutual, like our clinics were fairly close to each other and we would refer back, I would refer back and forth with this one physio and there'd always be an email that would go back and forth and be like, hey, this is what I found. It's like, okay, cool. And we had a really good working relationship and then I switched place. Um, so it's, I think it's going to be just as individual with, uh, with the practitioner as, as it is with the patient. Yeah. And I think for me too, I would uh, reach out and it was probably my own ego early in my career where I would be really dead set on trying to maybe change somebody's mind or change another practitioner's mind based on my philosophical views of practice. And to be honest, I just don't, I just don't do it anymore. I'm over it. Like I'll just, I do my own thing. I'll reach out. And if the, the practitioner is willing to have a conversation, work collaboratively together, that's great. But if they're not, I, I have a tendency to not lose much sleep over it right now and just carry on, put my head down and, and do my own thing. I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. And I think that's also like one of the benefits of getting more involved in and understanding the exercise components is that you don't have to refer out so much, um, you know, build up that confidence and, and be confident that you can help your patient without having to refer them out to somebody else. And, um, you know, not that there's anything wrong with referring out, but, you know, gain that confidence and make it so that you can do more things for your patient than just having them laying passively on the table for a treatment. Exactly. Because some people just don't want their minds changed. So there's no point in us trying to necessarily change the other practitioner's mind, just put your head down, do your own thing, continue to do good work with your patients and your patients are going to reap the benefits and your practice is going to continue to flourish because of the great work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. I think we've touched on this a little bit. Um, what advice do you have for newer therapists around, uh, not necessarily graded exposure, but exercise prescription without experience. And then touching on further to that point, do you think specific exercise prescription matters? And if so, where? Well, my advice would be, like I said before, is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Just get started. Um, there's, you know, hop on Google Scholar and there's a ton of research out there on exercise framework and exercise prescription that you can look at. Um, and most of it is based on like the isometric, concentric, eccentric, which is all stuff you can do on your table. So just don't be scared of it. You know, it's called a practice for a reason. So don't be afraid to practice with the people who you have on your table. They're not going to get upset with you. I mean, lots of people looked at me and they're like, well, but they're coming in for a massage. Don't people get mad when you make them like do these movements? I've never had one person look at me and be like, I can't believe you made me do that. In fact, most of the people, especially when I would take them down in the gym, would look at me and be like, no one's ever done this for me. No one has ever done these things with me and I feel way better because of it. So just, you know, have the confidence that you can learn, have the confidence that the patients will be fine with you getting them moving and just get going with it. Again, it doesn't have to be perfect. You just got to get started. I get asked the question a lot about some of the systems that are out there, the functional movement systems or selective functional movement assessment, FMS or SFMA. And I'm sure there are many others that are out there regarding uh, movement assessment and looking at something that is largely qualitative and attempting to make it quantitative. What do you think about those systems? Do you think that there's there's value in our field? Do you think there's value in maybe taking a course like that? I'd love to know your your thoughts there. 
this might be the most controversial thing that you bring up because I'm completely against it. <laughs> well, I don't have any movement system courses, so. <laughs> I think what you're doing there, and granted, this is just my opinion, is that you're getting somebody to move as though they're a completely symmetrical individual, which we aren't. Um, and then you're telling them that because the left side doesn't move the same way as the right side, they're dysfunctional on that side. Um, and I know looking at your, your blog and your bio, you've got a fair bit of experience working in hockey. So if we just look at a hockey player and say we've got a hockey player that's left-handed, so they're always going to be rotated with their left hand down and their right arm up. Uh, that's a very asymmetrical person. But being asymmetrical for that in that way is working really well for them. It's very important for their sport. So then how can we put them through a functional movement screen and say, well, you're dysfunctional on that side when they actually need it to be that way? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I, and I think even if you're doing that with the general public, you're sitting there constantly saying, you've got a dysfunction on this side. You're telling them that negative stuff and you're putting those negative thoughts in their head, which is actually gonna promote disability over, over function. Yeah, I don't know whether I honestly don't know the answer to this, but I don't know whether some of those systems, I've taken a few systems courses way, way back, but I don't know whether some of those systems have moved away from the asymmetrical model or not. I think it's still grounded in that, but yeah. I, ha I have done some other interviews with people that follow that model that haven't come out yet. And I don't know whether it's um, specific to the sport, but they are taking... I don't even know how to necessarily word it. They're taking into account sports like hockey, golf, particularly like unilateral movement sports. And they are understanding that that is an ad advantageous thing for them a lot of the time. Okay. I don't know how that falls into the context of these systems or further to that, whether this person was just talking outside of that system during the interview. Okay. What do you think about some of the concepts that are discussed within those systems, things like mobility, stability, motor control, stiffness, those type of things in, in rehabilitation? That, do you think the concepts offer value, I guess? To be honest, I haven't looked at their concepts on those things a whole lot. And when we look at a lot of those things like stiffness, you know, if a person's coming in and saying they're feeling stiff, that's, that's a feeling that's unique to them. And I don't know that a movement screen is going to change any of that it was it was funny last year at camp um one of the girls got on the table and i was working on her back and she said uh you know does my back feel stiff and i was like i don't know i've never treated you before how would i know if, <laughs> how would i know if your back feels stiff and she's like well my other therapist always says how stiff i feel and i'm like well do you feel stiff and she goes no and i'm like well you're probably not stiff it's more important what's in more important of how they feel not what i'm saying that their tissue feels like to me um, so I don't know if that actually falls into the movement screen thing about stiffness or not, but, um, I would, I would have to look more at what those movement screens are saying as far as those things to give you an, an educated answer on. Like I said, I've taken a few courses in the past. I think like every course I've taken, I pull a little bit from everything and you kind of morph your, your own practice style into what's working for you and the population that you're, you're dealing with. So I don't throw them out entirely, but I. I'm not one to practice in a strict dichotomy of anything for every single patient, because I think that if you, if you do, you can get maybe lost in those systems sometimes if you're always looking for an answer and sometimes it's not there, but 
you know what, that's, that's just my opinion. I'm sure there are people that are very successful that practice in and of those systems ideally as well. Yeah, totally. And I think it's just what works for them and what works for their, their patient population. I think, um, uh, in speaking to those systems a lot, they are quite common in like strength and conditioning. And so how do you think that we work and maybe you could speak to hockey Canada a little bit. How do you think the therapy industry works? And this doesn't necessarily have to be specific to massage, but any of the kind of paramedical professions, how do you think we work in conjunction with the strength and conditioning community and kind of getting patients to that point where they have to take that leap back to say performance because performance might be different for an elderly person that is trying to get out of their car versus an elite level athlete that's trying to play Olympic hockey. And so in the context of a a therapy appointment, let's say we get them to a certain stage. How do you feel strength and conditioning plays a role in getting that athlete back to a high performance level in our industry? Do you think that it's being used enough like general public clinics, do you think it's still being used in just a sport performance setting? Would you like to see more of it? Definitely. Well, I definitely think it has to be used in the sport performance setting. To your other example, let's say the elderly person getting out of a car, I'm trying to think how to word this properly. If, if the person's not able to get out of the car because they're experiencing pain of some sort, then I don't see that as a strength and conditioning thing. If they can't get out of the car because they're just weak and don't have the ability to do it, then that would be a strength and conditioning thing. And in the, if it was something like that, I would probably refer to somebody who, who specializes in that, like a strength and conditioning coach, or like I work with a lot of athletic therapists. That's probably the point where I'd be like, this is better for you to manage because you understand that better than I do. Whereas if it was because they're just experiencing some pain and they can't do it, then that's where I'm going to be more comfortable with it and say, well, I can rehab that, you know, I can deal with the pain and then rehab you to be able to get you to the point of being able to do that again. Um, but if it was a matter of like putting on a bunch of muscle to be able to do it, that's where I refer to somebody who's a lot better at that than I am. So I guess that's one of your other decision-making criteria of looking at whether you're dealing with an element of pain as well as your own comfort level in treating that particular patient versus is this just a general conditioning issue that that person might be better suited for somebody that deals with that on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think that also goes back to the question that you asked before, and we didn't really touch on about exercise prescription. Um, that's where I think like the really specific exercise prescription goes to say that athlete who's trying to get back to performance. Um, whereas the specific exercise prescription for that elderly person that's getting out of the car might be just getting in and out of the car 10 times until they build up the strength and resilience to be able to do it. Um, so they're both kind of a specific exercise prescription, but very different. You know, we're looking at in the athlete, we're trying, probably trying to look at the biomechanical, say of, for a hockey player of, you know, how does the hip work during that skating stride to be able to do that more effectively. Um, so that's where I would be probably going to an athletic therapist or something like that, and letting them manage that uh, or a strength and conditioning coach, because they're going to be a lot better at that. You know, I love the strength and conditioning community and I love the athletic therapy community. And I think it, that in certain communities and populations, I would love to see them used far more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, that's one thing that I was, you know, touched on it before when we're talking about the national level. Like I remember when we went to Russia a couple of years ago, 
um, me and the physio and the SNC coach were very much like, okay, you're covering this today, you're covering this, you're covering this. And there was like zero ego between us. And there'd be days where, you know, there's a, a goalie practice and a player practice that are like back to back. And the SNC coach would look at me and be like, Jim, can you go do the warm up with the goalies while I go manage the players and do their warm up? Because um, it had to be at different times. And so it really was a collaborative, like, let's work together on this. So that's, you know, as an aside, that I think when you've got those people that, that don't have so much ego where you can just help each other out with what you're doing, then you not only can you learn a lot from them, but just working together makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. Those settings that I've worked in that are, are so like totally collaborative are, are just, they're really, really fun to work in. And even the patients and the athletes just love it because everybody is is on the same team, uh, striving towards one common goal, and that's to win in those really, really high-performing environments. Yeah, and none of the none of the medical staff are getting their feelings hurt because they didn't, you know, they weren't part of whatever thing. Is I mean, I've I've heard stories about other other programs, but you know, the the one I see coach when we did Russia there, she was she was going to school to be an RMT as well, so she'd come into the treatment room and be like, "Oh, do you mind if I do this?" <laughs> no, go ahead. That's less work for me. By all means, jump in. Whereas some other ones would be like, no, that's that's not your role. Don't ever do that. So I, I just love the collaborative side of things when it comes to that. Just before we finish up, I want to ask you one final question, and that's just for people that are listening. What do you think the importance of, of exercise in general is in the world today with uh, so many people being a lot more sedentary because of everything that's going on? Do you think... I'll just get your thoughts on it. What do you think about it? What advice for, for people do you have about staying active, keeping active, not even necessarily in the context of pain, but just overall health and wellness? Well, yeah, I think it's hugely important. And, and, you know, when we look at a lot of the research, when it, when it comes to pain, um, exercise is one of the best things we can do in order to help it. And, and I think one of, the, one of the things about exercise that's so great is the effects that it has on our mood. So just simply looking at the, the research on low back pain, one of the biggest predictors for low back pain is people dealing with depression. That depression is actually one of the leading causes of low back pain. So we know what exercise does for mood. So if exercise is the thing that helps us, say, have less depression, um, and I'm, you know, I'm not about to talk about people who are clinically depressed and give them advice on what they should do. They should talk to their doctor about that. Um, but if we can increase the mood, chances are we're going to have an effect on the pain that they're experiencing as well. So if we can increase the mood and decrease the pain by doing something that you're managing yourself and not having to depend on somebody else for, uh, that's where I think exercise is just hugely important for us. Um, and I mean, especially for everybody who's in lockdown right now, that's dealing with everything that's going on for COVID. Uh, I know that like anxiety rates, depression rates and everything are going up. If that's one thing we can do to help with all that, then I think that's a massive win. So it, it doesn't have to be that you jump in the gym and go and lift a bunch of heavy weight. It can be just a matter of going for a walk for a half an hour and getting out of the house and getting some fresh air. So just, you know, get out and exercise, get out in nature, go do something you enjoy. And, and I think that's the biggest thing is if you can just find an exercise that you enjoy, then you're more likely to do it more often and the more it's going to benefit you. So, you know, find something you enjoy and get out there and do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Make sure you enjoy it. Make sure you take those baby steps and adopt some of the, the graded exposure examples that Jamie's been talking about today. Look, Jamie, I really uh, have appreciated the conversation today. Where can people find you on social media if they want to learn more about some of the great things that you're doing? 
my website is the mtdc.com. So T-H-E-M-T-D-C.com. Um, and that's, I think, all my Twitter handles and all that kind of stuff are the same. It's just Jamie at MTDC and it's at the MTDC on Instagram. And then just my personal accounts on, on Facebook and that are just Jamie M. Johnston. So happy to hear from anybody. And, and again, really appreciate you having me on and really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast, man. We need, we need more therapists doing this kind of stuff. So big kudos to you for uh, taking the initiative on this. Thanks, man. I appreciate the conversation uh, and I appreciate your time today. Again, folks, if, uh, if you have any questions for Jamie or myself about this episode, feel free to leave them in the comments section below. As always, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.